This is The Common Denominator, and I'm Ilana Rachel Daniel. Welcome to The Common Denominator. I'm Ilana Rachel Daniel. One of the tenets that defines the pursuit of science is the dynamic relationship one must have with their conclusions. In the pursuit of truth and coherence, I must be willing to adjust my yesterday's theory to the evidence that has been revealed today. As long as we are willing to do that, then we as individuals, as a community, and then as a public, have any chance of arriving at a coherent view of the world. So too, as long as we continue to bend the facts of reality, however inconvenient, to suit our ideology, we leave ourselves subject to the cynical, manipulative psychological warfare that defines our increasingly invasive media and degrades our ability to climb out of an abyss of chaotic incoherence. Today's episode provides, yes, fascinating lessons of history, but they are no mere lessons of the past, for they will be all but indistinguishable from hot-off-the-press headlines of today. So integral and inseparable are the ideologies and the methodologies established 100 years ago. Their influence is as relevant as they were upon their creation. Our guest today, Professor Francisco Gill-White, has dedicated decades of meticulous research to restore pieces to the puzzle of the past 100 years that do no less than recalibrate the entirety of the framework with which we view the Arab-Israeli conflict. And the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Haj Amin al-Husseini, our primary focus, is a villain, a mass-murdering, genocidal villain of a resolute evil so great that without him, nothing we witness today in the Middle East can be understood, nor can we have any hope of escaping repeat. Professor Francisco Gilwhite is a historian and an evolutionary and sociocultural anthropologist from UCLA. He's the editor of the website Management of Reality, where he regularly publishes articles on a myriad of topics related to the structure of the world system, concentrating on what happens in the U.S. and the Middle East. He's the author of a book series on the collapse of the West, the next Holocaust, and its consequences. Subject matters on the history of the West through the experience of the Jewish people. It's written in Spanish, and articles are being published in English on his website Management of Reality. A tremendous welcome to you, Professor Gil White, to The Common Denominator. Thank you, Alana. It's great to uh, be here. Professor, there are no less than five different topics I'd be delighted to discuss with you. But in the name of making order and realigning history, what I'd like to do today, to the best of our ability in the time we have, is to reframe the past 100 plus years of events in the land of Israel as you have outlined in your groundbreaking research done back in 2006. I will say now, and perhaps again, the perspective of the Jews has never been told, not in full. We are mentioned in the context of our mass murdering or victimhood, but the full spectrum of who we are and how we have experienced the world, even our position in history, has been all but erased until you enter chock full of questions and logic with this magnus opus that was first published in 2003 in Israel National News and then updated in 2006. It's a consistent timeline of events from the perspective of the early Jews in Israel, and I call it nothing short of heroic, no less in light of the degradation of dialogue we witness today. Professor, wherever you want to 
get started, whether it's in the 1920s or even a touch before, please, from the beginning of, of your work, um, introduce us to, to, to the research that you've discovered. I think the, the right place to begin to understand the real essence of the conflict between the Arabs and the Jews is Haj Amin al-Husseini because, in fact, at least with the Palestinians, let's say, there was no necessary conflict because when the Zionist Jews began settling in British Mandate Palestine, the effect of Jewish settlement there, of Zionist settlement there, was tremendous benefit to the Arabs who lived in Mandate Palestine. Why? Because before the Zionist Jews began arriving, I should make clear there were Jews and Arabs living there, uh, not just Arabs. But the Arabs who lived there were in a very bad position because most of them were essentially slaves. So the the land was owned by, you might call them feudal lords, actually. Uh, these were uh, large Arab landowners who had these big estates and in, this, in these big estates worked what are called felahim, these were peasant agricultural workers who didn't own their own land, who worked for these feudal lords, and who were daily abused by these feudal lords because the, the structure of the situation was entirely feudal in the sense that the payment they would get for their work was always less than what they needed to live. So they were forced to take on debt, and the creditor was the feudal lord. So the feudal lord would extend credit to these agricultural laborers. The interest on the debt was always much too high. It was impossible for them ever to pay this back. So the debt accumulated. Uh, you know, they were charging interest rates of 50%, sometimes higher than 50%. So obviously it, it was impossible to pay. And the consequence of not being able to pay your debt is that you couldn't leave. So in practical terms, they were slaves, even if not formally enslaved. And when the Zionists started coming into British Mandate Palestine, contrary to what many people think, because the, the idea that many people have in their heads is that the Zionists acted as European colonialists and uh, at the point of a gun stole the land from the na native inhabitants. This is the model that most people have in their heads. Why? Because Zionism in the, uh, let us say, cultural discourse of the modern left is always equated to colonialism and imperialism. Uh, but that's not how it worked. Uh, unlike the British colonialists or the French colonialists or the Spanish colonialists or the German colonialists, what the Zionist movement did is that it went to the Arab landowners and it offered money in exchange for land. And the people who were willing to sell, who had title to the land and were willing to sell, sold some land. And the people who didn't want to sell didn't. It was an entirely voluntary process. When the Zionists bought land, the effect on the agricultural laborers was uh, almost entirely positive because in the transactions, as the Jewish agency bought these lands, the agricultural laborers were set free. Their debts were canceled, they were set free, and with that freedom, they could now make choices. For example, the choice to hire themselves out no longer to these Arab feudal lords, but instead to the kibbutzim and the uh, local enterprises, the local companies that the Zionist Jews were creating 
in British Mandate Palestine. The conditions of work in, in the kibbutzim or in the uh, new companies created by the Zionist Jews were much better because the Zionist Jews, most of them that were coming into British Mandate Palestine had a leftist ideology. Many of them were explicit Marxists. And so their worldview was, well, we, we have to assist the liberation of the Arab worker. We have to uh, be solidary with the Arab workers. So uh, these were much better employers for the Arab fellahin than the Arab feudal lords had ever been. So there was no obvious reason for these Arabs, who we now call Arab Palestinians, to wish the destruction of the Zionist movement or to want to kill Jews or any of these other things that the uh, Arab fanatics started pressuring them to do. And in fact, what we see in the early stages of the Arab-Palestinian movement is that an enormous amount of violence was directed against ordinary Arab-Palestinians to force them to participate in anti-Jewish terrorism. It was not their initial inclination because they could see that the uh, Zionist movement was uh, bringing lots of benefits to them. And in fact, the benefits were so obvious, so dramatic, that during the period of British Mandate Palestine, there was a tremendous immigration of Muslims and Arabs from different areas of the Arab and Muslim world into Mandate Palestine because they were looking for opportunities that they couldn't find elsewhere. So Arabs migrated into British Mandate Palestine from Egypt, from Lebanon, from Syria, from Arabia, from different places, as far as Algeria, Circassia, different places. And these are the people that we now call Arab Palestinians. The great majority of them, in fact, immigrated from elsewhere. This is not to deny that there was an Arab population there. Of course, there was. But the great majority of the people we now call Arab Palestinians immigrated to British Mandate Palestine during the Mandate period. So where does Haj Amin al-Husseini come into this? When the British Mandate was created in 1920, Husseini, who was then uh, relatively young, he was in his uh, 20s, I believe, he organized bands of terrorists to attack the, the members of the Yeshuv, that is to say the, the Jewish community in Mandate Palestine. He, Husseini organized Arab terrorists to go kill Jews living in, in Mandate Palestine, and not only Zionists, but any Jews. It, it was a racist movement against any and all Jews. And this was called the Al-Nebi Musa Massacre. That's 1920. So this is how Husseini sort of became locally famous. It was by organizing this massacre. And, and may I just ask now, yeah. Husseini, he was one of these incredibly wealthy families of landowners who were basically the lords over the incredibly poor Arab population there at the time. This is correct. So Husseini was a member of the Husseini family. And the Husseini family, along with the Nashashibi family, was one of the two biggest feudal landowning families in British Mandate Palestine. So Husseini was the scion of this family. And uh, he, he was obviously, you know, a beneficiary of the family's prestige, which he used to organize these terrorists in 1920 in the Al-Nebi Musa massacre. And the consequence of that massacre was that the British authorities decided that Husseini was just the right person to become the Mufti of Jerusalem. And they made him the Mufti of Jerusalem and gave him a lot of power. 
I emphasize, this was after Husseini demonstrated that he could organize terrorist attacks against the Jews. So what did the British authorities do? There was a, um, an election held for uh, the position of Mufti of Jerusalem. Now, one thing you have to understand about this position is that before the bridge came along, the position of Mufti of Jerusalem, the office of the Mufti of Jerusalem, was uh, not such a big deal. It was the power of the Mufti was constrained to the area of Jerusalem, and the power of the Mufti didn't extend beyond the city. Whereas, uh, and that was in the Ottoman period. Now, in the British period, the, the British Mandate period, the office of the Mufti was expanded to include the entire Mandate territory, and it was given all kinds of powers that the Mufti of Jerusalem didn't have before. So he had powers of taxation over the Arab population. He had control over the schools, over the Islamic schools, the madrasas. He had control over the clerics, the Muslim clerics that preached in the mosques. He also had a subsidy from the English crown. So he had all this power to appoint and remove, you know, teachers and imams and, and mullahs in the, in the mosques. And he had the power to tax the Arab population and receive the subsidy, which allowed him uh, great political authority and uh, prestige for moving the Arab masses uh, in one direction or the other. The British, after Husseini demonstrated that he could organize attacks against the Jews, the British decided they would make him the mufti with all these powers. And they really wanted him because in the election, the rules for the election to the office of Mufti were the following. The British would, the, the Arabs would vote for candidates who decided to postulate themselves for the office. And the British would then choose from the three top winners of votes who the, who the actual Mufti would be. That was the formal arrangement. Now, in the elections, in 1921, Husseini actually came in fourth. So he was not one of the three that the British could choose from, which meant that according to the rules, they couldn't make Husseini Mufti. Things didn't work out the way they, they hoped, apparently. So what they did is they pressured the third place to relinquish his claim, okay, to resign. And that made Husseini the third. And, and in that way, the British got to choose Husseini for the office of Mufti. In my view, this is very clear evidence that British authorities were trying to destroy Zionism rather than as people usually think. But the model that people have is that the British came in to uh, suppress the Arabs and, and give everything to the Jews. That's not what happened. The British, in fact, made Mufti of Jerusalem, the, the Arab leader who had already proved his mettle as an organizer of terrorism against against the Zionist Jews and against any Jews in British Mandate Palestine. Okay, so they make him the Mufti with all of these expanded powers, and he uses that power to organize another terrorist attack against the Jews in 1921. Right away, he used his new powers to attack the Jews again. And as was explained by Colonel Patterson, uh, who was a, a British officer stationed in British Mandate Palestine, who happened to be pro-Zionist, he wrote a very important testimony uh, explaining that his colleagues, the British military officers, were collaborating with the Mufti in organizing these terrorist attacks, which had the structure of a pogrom. So 
pogrom is a word that comes from Tsarist Russia. And what it means is an attack against the Jewish, uh, against the civilian Jewish population, which is uh, led and carried out by the, let us say, the non-Jewish ordinary people of the place, but with the tacit collusion of the authorities. So what the authorities would do in the Russian programs is that they would order the police to exit the city so that there would be nothing to impede the attacks of Russians against Jews. The authorities would evacuate the city. Of course, before the attack, there would have been some propaganda going on, maybe by the religious authorities or by the newspapers that were secretly funded by the political authorities and so forth. So there would be attacks against the Jews sort of to prepare the population for the violence and so forth, incite them to the violence. And then on the day of the attack, the authorities would not themselves attack the Jews, but they would make sure that they weren't there so that no authority would become an obstacle to the attack on the Jews. So that was the structure of the attack on the Jews in 1921, according to Patterson. So Patterson accused, yeah, they, there was an agreement between Husseini and his goons and the British authorities so that nobody would hamper the attack. In 1929, Husseini organized another enormous attack uh, after using propaganda to convince the Arabs that the Jews were, were supposedly going to attack the Al-Aqsa Mosque. This was a complete fabrication. But because the Mufti had prestige, he, you know, Husseini was the Mufti of Jerusalem, he had prestige, he could communicate directly with all the clerics. So he had the clerics in the mosques tell the Arabs that supposedly they knew that the Jews were preparing an attack against the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And that was used to mobilize people once again to attack the Jews living in Mandate Palestine with terrorism. And that was a tremendous attack. Uh, the Jewish community thought that they might be exterminated. That's how big it was. And then there was a fourth attack that comprises the period 1936 to 1939. That was the biggest of them all. It was called the Arab Revolt. Uh, that's what they called it, the Arab Revolt. And there were fighters who came in from Iraq and from uh, Jordan and other places to attack the Jews in, in Mandate Palestine. And the weapons that had been provided by Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler, okay, because there was already quite a lot of communication going on between the Mufti Husseini and uh, the forces of uh, the Axis. So that's Husseini. That's what he was doing in British Mandate Palestine. Now, I want to go back to the topic of uh, the land acquisitions, because during the Arab Revolt, which again goes from 1936 to 1939, Right in the middle of the Arab Revolt, this created so much mayhem that the British created a committee of inquiry headed by Lord Peel that was sent to Mandate Palestine to investigate what all the mess was about. And that committee of inquiry called Haj Amin al-Husseini to testify about what was going on because he was the organizer of all the mayhem. And in the questioning process of Husseini, they asked him, what, what is it that you guys are complaining about? Is it the case that the Jews have been stealing land from the Arabs? Are they taking land by force? And this is all in the record of the Committee of Inquiry. Husseini answered, no, they didn't take land by force. And so the guy questioning him, he said to Husseini, wait, I don't understand. What are you saying? You're saying these transactions were free and willing transactions? Are you saying they bought the land? And Husseini said, yeah, they bought the land. Wait a minute, who sold the land? You mean the Arab landowners sold the land? And Husseini replied, yeah, 
Arab landowners sold the land. And so the guy came back and, and tried to clarify, wait a minute. I, so I just want to make sure I understand. Was any force, any coercion used to get these Arabs to sell the land? And Husseini had to admit that no force had been used. You see, because that was the case. Even Husseini, who obviously wished he could have done this, couldn't accuse the Zionist Jews of using any kind of force to acquire land in British-mandated Palestine. All of the transactions had been willing transactions between Arab landowners who had title to the land and wanted to sell their land because the Zionist Jews were paying top dollar uh, for the lands that they acquired. Now, where was force being used? Because force was being used. It was being used on the Arab side by Husseini. So what uh, Husseini's cousin was doing on, Hus on Husseini's behalf was that he was going to the small Arab landowners, people who had plots of land that were you know, relatively small, and he would go to them and would put a gun to their head and would say, look, don't even think about selling your plot of land to the Jews, because if you do that, we're going to kill you and your entire family. And they would they would honor these promises. So the, the uh, small landowners among the Arabs were terrified of Husseini, Husseini and his terrorist goons. You know, they, so they put the gun to their heads. They said, don't you think about selling land to the Jews? But guess what? If you really want to sell your land, I'll buy it. And so the Husseini family would buy from the small landowners their plots of land. Of course, they would buy them for very, very low prices because they were threatening the small landowners with guns, right? So they would buy them for, for ridiculously low prices, consolidate them into larger estates, and then they would sell them to the Jewish agency for much, much higher prices. It was a racket. It was a, a kind of a protection racket, Chicago-style protection racket. And the idea, Hussein's idea, was we're going to kick the Jews out with terrorism that we are going to fund with the land sales to the Jews. So it doesn't matter that we're selling the land because we're going to get it back when we kick them out. And we'll use the, land, the money from the land sales to build the terrorist movement and kick them out. Now, I want to return now uh, just to close this section to the point that I raised in the, in the beginning, which is that the ordinary folk at the bottom of Arab society were not interested in killing Jews. Most of them were not. The demonstration is that in the Arab revolt, which was the biggest terrorist attack against the Jews in Mandate Palestine, Husseini killed 400 Jews and more than 2,000 Arabs. Why was he killing so many more Arabs than Jews? Because the Palestinian Arabs did not want to participate in the terrorist movement against the Jews. They had to be forced at the point of a gun. They had to be forced because they could see the benefits that the Zionist movement was bringing to everyone in Mandate Palestine. So Husseini, the terrorist, had to force them at the point of a gun. That's why he killed so many more Arabs than he did Jews, even though the movement was ostensibly against the Zionist Jews. It's absolutely stunning that every part that you've described here could literally have been from today's news. Um, the rule of Husseini over the schools equals the sham of UNRWA, which has finally been exposed despite, you know, a decade or more of, of, of documented evidence of exactly the 
Yes, those of us who care about this topic have known this for a long time. UNRWA is the uh, the UN agency that is specifically devoted to the so-called Palestinian refugees. Okay, right. that's what UNRWA is for. And it's important to know that UNRWA is a unique organization because every other refugee around the world, any human being who is considered a refugee around the world is actually assisted by UNHCR, right. which is the, the regular refugee agency of the UN. And so every refugee in the world falls under the jurisdiction of UNHCR, except for the Arab Palestinians who have their own UN agency that is explicitly and specifically for them, only Absolutely. for them. Just, yeah. just very, very important. UNRWA yeah. is staffed almost exclusively by Arab Palestinians. Okay. So it's in and of itself, UNRWA is, is a kind of an employee agency for Arab Palestinians. And therefore, it is Arab Palestinians who are running the UNRWA schools in Gaza and in, in uh, Judea and Samaria. And what they teach in those schools, as those of us who study this know, is jihadism. That's what they teach in UNRWA schools. Little kids no older than f five, six years old are being taught from a kindergarten to hate the Jews and to aspire to become shahids, which is to say, quote unquote, martyrs who will sacrifice themselves killing Jews and, and thereby enter heaven. This is the, the idea that they teach them from an early age. This is what the UN is doing to Arab Palestinian children. Absolutely. And I and it can't be emphasized enough, even having dedicated an entire episode to it previously, because at the root of the matter is generational child abuse. And not only is yeah. it the systematic abuse of, of children and of generations, it is it is the cyclical violence that has absolutely embedded us 100 years in. It's, it's astonishing to hear. And, and the other parallels that I, you know, the, the, the horrors that we experienced on October 7th, what was the name of it? <laughs> The Al-Aqsa flood. This is the, so it's that exact same incitement for the exact same reason. And an, another parallel being the valid and legal sale of land. The willing. Very good. Overpriced. <laughs> I can say still goes on as an Israeli citizen of, of land where you have in the Torah, Avraham buying for 400 shekel Marat Mechpalah in order to bury Sarah, his wife. And as we see, all of these places where actual sales were written in black and white are some of the most disputed places today. So right. it's absolutely incredible. It's really just incredible to see this is 100 years ago. That you're well, speaking. and there's another, there's another parallel between the situation 100 years ago and what still goes on today, which is that uh, the terrorists of the Palestinian, what we call the Palestinian Authority now, which of course is the same thing as Pilo Fatah, Right? We now call them by this more genteel name, Palestinian Authority. But the, the terrorists of the Palestinian Authority will murder any Arab Palestinian who is found to be selling land to any Jew. So this is still going on. So uh, in order for an Arab Palestinian to sell his land to Jews, a very complicated process of you know intermediaries and shell companies and blah, blah, blah needs to be done in order to protect them. Because otherwise... They will be murdered by the Palestinian Authority. And the same thing happens in, of course, Hamas does the same thing. So 
the, all of these things are still going on. They they were put in place a hundred years ago by the founder of the Arab Palestinian movement, who is this guy Haj Amin al Husseini. And the thing that must be emphasized for your audience, I think, is is that the conflict between Arab Palestinians and Jews was unnecessary. It didn't need to happen. It was forced on both Arabs and Jews by Haj Amin al Husseini. So, and then the the other thing that's very important to know about uh, Haj Amin al Husseini and the Arab Palestinian movement is that this movement was deeply embedded with the German Nazis. So it's not merely that the weapons for the Arab revolt were supplied by the genocidal maniacs in Germany, then planning the destruction of the European Jews. That's, I mean, that's true, but that's not the extent of it. When the Arab revolt of 1936 to 1939 created such mayhem in mandate Palestine that the British found themselves obligated to do something about it, they had to uh, at least pretend to try and arrest Haj Amin al-Husseini. So Husseini fled Mandate Palestine, and he went to Iran, I believe, initially, and then to Iraq. And in Iraq, he was treated as, as if he were an Iraqi politician. Because, oh, one thing we have to explain is that the Mufti Husseini had great prestige all over the Arab world. Tremendous prestige. He was a very, very influential individual in a pan-Arab context. And so, and many people thought he was going to be the next caliph. That's how important he was. So when he went to Iraq, the Iraqi government, which was supposedly nominally articulated with the British Empire, right? But they were, in fact, ideologically in favor of the German Nazis. So the Iraqi government gave Haj Amin al-Husseini a cabinet position, they, they, a, a kind of a cabinet position. They gave him a budget. And then they allowed him to order people about and organize inside Iraq. And Husseini used that power to organize what is called the Farhut. And by the way, uh, uh, historian Edwin Black has written an excellent book on the Farhud, which was recently published in the last few years. And, and the Farhud was a pogrom. The pogrom that finished, essentially finished Jewish life in Baghdad. What yeah. you said, which I did not know before, it's actually mind-blowing because you're talking about organizing so much violence first here in the land of Israel. And it's really important to underline the success of that violence. That violence was so great that it threatened the... the yeah, it, it threatened to undermine the entire project to create a Jewish home. It, it, it literally almost didn't happen yeah. at all. And then you had a man so single-minded that when he went to, to Baghdad and you have one of the most ancient Jewish communities, communities. there, two, yeah. more than two and a half thousand years old, right. virtually destroyed. Well, I mean, there were Jews there ever since ancient Babylon, ever since the exile to, to, to Babylon, there, there were Jews there. So uh, the very ancient, as, as you said, 2,500 years. And that ancient community was destroyed in the, in the Farhud. Uh, the survivors fled to other places. So he organizes the Farhud, then he travels to Italy. This is now the World War is going on, right? The Second World War is going on because that started in 1939, which is when he fled uh, Mandate Palestine. So he travels to Italy. The war is going on. He is received in Italy by Mussolini as, a head of, as if he were a head of state with all the pomp and circumstance. 
Then he travels to Berlin, where he is also received as a head of state. All of the dignitaries come out to meet him. Hitler himself comes out to meet him. This is all recorded on film. I have a, a short documentary where we show the footage. And they sit down to talk. They have a very important meeting where very important agreements are reached, chief among them that uh, Husseini and Hitler would collaborate to exterminate the Jews living in the Middle East. So this obviously includes British Mandate Palestine, but as we've seen with the Farhud, Husseini was interested in killing Jews elsewhere in the Middle East as well. So he reaches this important agreement uh, with Hitler. And then, according to the testimony of Dieter Wislaseni, let me give you some context for this testimony first. Dieter Wislaseni was Adolf Eichmann's right-hand man. In the, in the structure of the final solution, we have Adolf Eichmann at the top as the administrator of the system of death camps created by the German Nazis to, to murder the European Jews, right? So the, the director of that death camp system, that was Adolf Eichmann. But below him, there were lieutenants for the different regions. And one of those lieutenants was Dieter Wislikseni or Wislikseni. I never know how to pronounce it properly. And he, he was the Czechoslovak. And he, therefore, was an eyewitness to Adolf Eichmann's relationships with other people, Husseini included. And when the war ended, Wislaseni was made prisoner by the Allied powers, and he was tried at, uh, by the Nuremberg War Crimes Tribunal and then executed for his crimes against, uh, against humanity. But before being executed, Wislaseni gave an enormous amount of testimony to the war crimes to the Nuremberg War Crimes Tribunal, and the prosecutors of the Nuremberg War Crimes Tribunal were unanimous in their uh, assessment of Wislaseni as a very useful and careful witness. Uh, he was a witness. Apparently, he was trying to, you know, expiate his guilt or something uh, by being a good witness, uh, and and he uh, the the prosecutors said that he very, very careful in correcting all kinds of minutiae in the evidence that the prosecutors had. And then they would go check what Wislaseni said, and it always turned out to be correct, right? So he was a very careful, very useful witness. About Husseini, Wislaseni testified that upon arriving in Berlin, he arrived in late October 1941, okay? That's when Husseini arrives in Berlin. He says he was louder and more extreme even than us in his condemnation of the Jews. And he was always urging us to accelerate the killing of Jews. And it was Husseini who convinced us, said Vislaseni, to switch from a policy of mostly expulsion. They were killing lots of Jews, but their, their policy was not yet total extermination. Their plan was to expel most of them. Uh, and he said, Husseini is the one who convinced us to no longer expel any Jews, but to concentrate on killing them all. Still, according to Wislaseni's testimony, he said that uh, Husseini had become Eichmann's best friend and that together they had designed and managed the entire system of death camps that murdered the European Jewish population. So this is Husseini. So what... People like to, you know, our, our Western scholars who are always apologizing for the Arab-Palestinian movement, whenever they do mention Husseini, which is rarely, they try to minimize or um, undermine 
Vizlaseni's testimony. And they, they call it hearsay, and they say that we, sh we shouldn't believe Vislaseni and so on and so forth. But they never give good reasons why. Vislaseni was a very good witness. He was an eyewitness to Eichmann's and Husseini's relationship. And if, if you're going to challenge the testimony of an eyewitness, you have to have very good reasons. And they don't have a single reason, none, not one, to uh, doubt Vislaseni's testimony. When they do give so-called, quote-unquote, reasons, they say things like, for example, uh, Hannah Arendt, who in my opinion was an anti-Semite, in her book uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem, she undermines the claims that uh, Husseini had anything to do with the uh, actual killing of European Jews by stating that Eichmann denied it. Can you imagine? So the fact that Eichmann at his trial deflected the, the accusations against Husseini is, is considered by Hannah Arendt as evidence against Vizlaseni's testimony. This is nonsense. Of course, Eichmann was going to try to protect Husseini. Was it also true that the Nazis gave him as well a bureaucratic position? Yes, as this, well is as a complete, this is completely true. So this uh, is they incredible. gave him. This is yeah, a second, third country from his original to Iraq to Nazi Germany. He's being right. given official government money and position and status. It's mind-blowing. That's right. Haji Amin al-Husseini was, was officially a Nazi bureaucrat. His bureaucracy was called Buro des Gross Mufti. Gross Mufti is Grand Mufti in, in German because the, the official title in, in Mandate Palestine was Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, not just Mufti, but Grand Mufti because he had, as, as we said, power over the entire Mandate territory. And so we have very good evidence that Husseini actually led at the highest level the German Nazi final solution because we have the testimony of Rudolf Andreas Steiner and Rudolf Kastner, who uh, both had interactions with Husseini, uh, forgive me, with Vislaseni during the war. And Vislaseni independently, separately told each of these persons, uh, Andreas Steiner and Rudolf Kastner, about. Husseini's role in the final solution in his relationship with, with Husseini. And so the, the Nuremberg War Crimes Tribunal received testimony from both Rudolf Steiner and Andre Steiner, Steiner on, on this issue. And then when they caught uh, Vislaseni and got a chance to interrogate Vislaseni, Vislaseni corroborated these two testimonies that the uh, uh, War Crimes Tribunal had already gotten. And he was, again, very careful. So there were a couple of things that Kastner and Steiner had said that were incorrect. So I'll give you an example. I, I believe that Steiner had told them that, according to Vislaseni, Eichmann had been born in Palestine. Vislaseni corrected that, and he said, no, 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 he was not born in Palestine, and he corrected a few other details. But on the question of the intimate relationship between Eichmann and Husseini, Vislaseni corroborated that. He said, yes, yes, they were best friends. And on the question of his role in the final solution, he also corroborated that. So the evidence is actually very, very good that Husseini participated at the highest level uh, 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 in the final solution. And given everything else we know about Husseini, there's simply no reason to doubt it. Now, what nobody contro controverts is that Husseini had an oversized role in Nazi propaganda. So he had a very, very big role in the Nazi radio inciting Muslims to kill Jews. Kill them where you will find them, quote unquote, is one of the phrases that Husseini used in his radio propaganda. And that's a quote 
That's a direct quote from the Quran. And the other thing that nobody can controvert is that Husseini, using his powers as you know leader of the Buro des Gross Mufti and the and the and the budget that he was given to run that that Nazi ministry, he organized the Muslims in Bosnia and in uh, Kosovo, uh, the Albanian Muslims in Kosovo and uh, Bosnian Muslims. He organized them in SS units. Entire SS divisions were organized and trained by Haj Amin al-Husseini for Himmler. Remember, the SS was the, what, what would we call, it was an intelligence and police operation of the German Nazis that was in charge of persecuting the Jews and persecuting uh, dissidents of the Nazi system and so forth. And it was run by Heinrich Himmler. It, and it, 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 the Muslim divisions of the SS that Husseini created participated in the Yugoslav chapter of the Holocaust, all right? So they went around the Yugoslav uh, countryside capturing and killing Serbs and Jews and, and gypsies, all right? So nobody controverts his role creating these SS divisions and uh, participating at the highest level in the Nazi propaganda. So we're talking about country number four, where Husseini is creating mass murder of Jews. Well, actually, you, you can add many more countries because... <laughs> Given that he participated at the highest level with Eichmann organizing the death camp system, that actually makes him responsible for the killing of Jews in the entire Nazi-occupied uh, zone. So that's Haj Amin al-Husseini. And we must emphasize this Husseini, the murder of the European Jews, is also the founding father of the Arab-Palestinian movement. And after the war... Husseini created in Egypt because because he was not tried at the uh, at the Nuremberg War Crimes Tribunal. Okay, so they they had him on they did catch him, but they put him on house arrest in the outskirts of Paris. Can you imagine putting this is like putting Hitler on house arrest? They're at the same level. So what of do course, you make of that? Why why Husseini spoiler died a free man? What do you make of that, Professor? Well, my explanation for that is that we can get into that in a second as soon as we're done talking about Husseini. But my explanation for that, just a spoiler for what we'll discuss in a second, is that uh, the so the people running the Western powers were ideologically allied with Hitler. That's my explanation for that. To understand that, you need to understand the topic of eugenics, which is the second volume of my book series, The Collapse of the West. The, the people pretending to fight the Nazis, because they, remember, they, they never put troops in Europe to fight the Nazis until after the Soviets had defeated the Nazis. This is very important. The invasion through Normandy was not even, the planning of that invasion was not even begun until after a couple of months after the Soviets had defeated the Nazis at the Battle of Kursk, which is after the Battle of Stalingrad, and were now advancing against the Nazis towards the West. Only after the Soviets demonstrated on the battlefield that the Nazis had lost the war, did the Allies even begin to plan the invasion through Normandy. This is consistent with what I was telling you a second ago, which is that, that, that the leaders of the Western powers were ideologically allied with Hitler and wanted Hitler to win the war. They were eugenicists. Eugenics is 
is the movement that that gave birth to German Nazism. And it was a pan-Western movement of the Western aristocracies. And we can talk about that uh, in a second. I just want to finish explaining Husseini so that people have the proper picture of the Arab-Israeli conflict. So they had Husseini on house arrest in the outskirts of Paris. And of course, Husseini was able to leave. Uh, he went to uh, an Arab embassy, got an Arab passport, and escaped to Cairo. And in Cairo, in the 1950s, he, uh, well, many, many other Nazis were seeking refuge in Cairo because Gamal Abdel Nasser, the dictator of Egypt, who had been a Nazi collaborator, was offering all of these German Nazis sanctuary in Cairo. So a lot of Nazis were arriving in Cairo to, uh, to be protected there by uh, Nasser. And one of them was Husseini. And he took advantage of the fact that his Nazi colleagues were there in Cairo as well to train a, a group of Arab adolescents, among them Yasser Arafat and Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, they, gave him, they gave them Nazi training, and that became the nucleus of Al-Fatah, uh, which in 1970, around 1970, swallowed the PLO. So the PLO is an organization created by Nasser, uh, the purpose of the PLO from the beginning was the extermination of the Jews in what was now the state of Israel, right? It was created in 1964. And the leader of the PLO at the time was called, uh, his name was Ahmed Shukeri. And there was uh, an assassination attempt against Ahmed Shukeri in, in 1968, which weakened the leadership of the PLO. But by 1970, Al-Fatah had essentially taken over the PLO. And, and uh, there were other groups in the PLO, but Al-Fatah calls all of the shots from 1970 onwards. So what we call the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, has been Husseini's organization, has been Al-Fatah ever since 1970. And that's the organization that the Oslo so-called peace process introduced into the Jewish state, into the state of Israel. So what the peace process did was bring an organization created to exterminate the Israeli Jews into Israel, right? So an, an organization created by the Nazi exterminator of the European Jews, created to exterminate the Israeli Jews, was brought into the Jewish state uh, thanks to the Oslo process of 1993-1994. We pause the timeline here so you might chew well and ingest the breadth of information given. I encourage you to check the sources on offer on the Management of Reality website to see for yourself the fortitude of the framework we're here developing. Please, meanwhile, share this information far and wide. And we'll see you here next Wednesday for part two of The Final Solution, Reframing 100 Years in the Land of Israel. 